Hey everybody, welcome to Ask Me Anything. I am here with Pastor J.D. Greer. Good rhyming by me there, and I am Matt Love, your host. And we are in the second week of a series. We are going through some of the questions from Pastor J.D.'s new book, Essential Christianity, The Heart of the Gospel in 10 Words. And we're really excited about this book from Pastor J.D., um, a great resource for anybody that is trying to understand and unpack how do I kind of think about my uh, like what Christianity means for me in really simple and helpful terms. Also a really good book, I think, for going through with, with your friends that are either new believers or not believers yet that are exploring Christianity. Um, I was actually talking to one of our church planters who is excited to use this book. He's near a college campus. And he feels like this could be a great resource for them as they try to engage and minister to college students. Um, so you can get this book at thegoodbook.com right now. Um, but we're going to go ahead and dive in with our second question, uh, which is, again, just a really key question to be able to answer. Even if you believe that it's true, how do we know that there's a God. And how would we talk about that with somebody else? So JD, how do we even know there's a God? Well, like we talked about in the previous podcast, this book is really trying to follow Paul's high points of logic in the book of Romans, and then just put them into the context of 21st century Americans, because his logic is incredibly relevant to how we think. He anticipates the questions we have. In fact, I had an unbelieving friend. She's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. She's become a friend of our family. Um, she actually became a Christian in the course of me writing this book. And so I had her read parts of it before she was a Christian. And she said, you know, what's amazing is how a first century writer writes something that addresses the questions that 21st century people are, are still asking. And one of those questions that he gets right into at the beginning is, how do we know what we know about God? I mean, God is invisible. There's no place you can go, you know, pay money and see him and have a conversation with him. How do we even know there's a God? And what Paul explains in Romans 1 is that the presence of God is undeniable. In fact, I've organized this book around 10 words, and the second word is undeniable. Paul says, what can be known about God is made plain to people, to all of us, because God has shown it to us. These, these invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and, and divine nature, they're clearly seen by everybody, and they, they can't be denied. Now, like a lot of the book of Romans, there's a lot of meat there, but Paul's basic claim is that God has made the basic truths about himself known to every person who's ever lived. He's left his fingerprints in various places if you have eyes to see them. You know, philosophers have helpfully grouped these fingerprints into four primary categories and then unhelpfully gave them very complicated names. Um, I, I'll give them to you and just review them each because I think they're all kind of embedded here in Romans 1. Um, and I'll use the complicated name, uh, but the concepts behind them are pretty simple, so don't let the name scare you. Um, hey, look, I figure if we could memorize the name of our $14, 16 ingredients drinks at Starbucks, we can learn the names of these of these arguments. And if you happen to be talking to somebody and you drop one of these cool you know, $15 terms, then you're going to sound super smart. So the first category is what theologians and philosophers call the cosmological fingerprint. This one goes all the way back to Aristotle. It's the question of why there's something rather than nothing, and where did the original something come from? Even if you suppose the world began 14 billion years ago with a big bang, where did all the materials that caused that big bang come from? You can't keep going back in infinite regress into nothingness. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness can't just explode into somethingness. In fact, in his book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins admits this is a huge problem. He admits Charles Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or the question of ultimate origins. Cosmology, he says, is waiting on its Darwin. In other words, he thinks that while Darwinism explains how life took shape on Earth, 
he admits that he still has little idea where life itself came from or where the materials that produce life came from. We need a theory, he says, as to why anything exists because, I mean, let's face it, it's self-evident that nothing times nobody can equal everything. But don't worry. Don't worry, he tells us in the book. One day we'll find it, which many would say is a textbook example of a blind, hopeful leap of faith. You know, I don't know the answer, but I know it's it's out there. Here's the second um, category that philosophers, theologians talk about, the teleological fingerprint. Teleological, telos, it means purpose. Not only do we have the question of why there's something rather than nothing, our creation appears to be very finely tuned, specifically for mankind. The more we learn about this, the more amazing it becomes. Uh, you know, scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if they're off by even a hair, life couldn't exist. In fact, some call it the Goldilocks principle. Things are, you know, just right. Not too warm, not too hot, not too far, not too close. The oxygen, um, in fact, that's a great example. Um, so, you know, our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, half a percentage of argon, and 0.03% carbon dioxide. Now, scientists tell us if some of those levels were even slightly off, for example, if our level of oxygen dropped by like 6%, dropped by 120th, we would all suffocate. If it rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball and we'd all die. If the carbon dioxide were, were just a little bit higher or just a little bit lower, you know, if it dropped to 0.01%, then the earth would become an oven or it would have no atmosphere at all. Or this is one I find pretty amazing. The water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form, ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means that when ice freezes, it floats. If ice didn't float, it would sink to the bottom and the whole ocean would eventually freeze from the bottom up and, well, we'd all die. Or how about this one? The distance of the earth from the sun. If we were 2% closer to the sun, our planet would be too hot for water to exist. 2% and we'd all die. You catching a pattern here? The tilt of the earth. It's set at an ideal 23.5 degrees, which is perfect for temperatures and tides. I mean, you probably never thought about it, but if it was not tilted, temperatures would become extreme and wait for it. We'd all die. At least the humans on, on the planet would. In fact, here's one more from something pretty far away. If Jupiter was not the size it is and in the orbit it is, Astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes right here on Earth. And probably we'd all die. And then we put up our telescopes and pull out our microscopes and we found the same complexity in the cell and the atomic structure. Even the most basic DNA strands are incredibly complex, enough so that, that Francis Collins, who is head of the Human Genome Project, says, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance of a DNA strand? And I would point out, these are not the conclusions of seminary grads that are doubling as amateur scientists. In fact, I remember a comment that the late Stephen Hawking made in one of his later books. He says, the laws of science, as we know them at present, contain many precise ratios. He points to the, um, the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and, and the neutron and the electron. He said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Now, I know people say, well, I mean, we're just lucky. In a universe as big as ours, our planet was bound to exist somewhere, and we just happened to be on it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a possibility, but scientists say that the odds of a planet like Earth existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It's like tossing a coin every second and having it come up heads for 10 billion years in a row. So, yeah, I guess we can postulate that our part of the galaxy was just a really lucky, convenient accident, but is that the easiest explanation for what we see? What Paul explains is that it takes an anti-God bias to arrive there, and it usually is that people have some other problem for believing in God that makes them turn away from the clear evidence. And that's what Paul's going to say is the problem with the human heart. It's not a problem with the evidence. It's a problem with the heart that is disposed to not believe God and to 
to resist him that causes them to interpret the evidence that way. Let me hit these last two really quickly, and then I'll kind of bring it to Paul's conclusion. We have the moral fingerprint. The very fact that I have moral feelings suggests the presence of a divine lawgiver. Um, Animals don't have that. Um, Cats, for example, seem to derive pleasure from playing with a mouse before they eat it. Yet I don't know of any illustrations of cats sniveling under the bed later feeling bad. It's not because cats are exceptionally evil. It's just in their nature. If a lion mauls a human, you never find him in the woods later racked with guilt. They don't feel guilty for acting according to their natures, but we humans do. And that's because Paul says stamped into our hearts is God's image. And it's a witness that there's a divine lawgiver. I always think about it when I go to um, our local airport, there's a little sign that tells me to keep my parking ticket with me. And then like probably every 10 feet, it reminds me of that. And what that is basically telling me is that somebody at some point is going to ask me for that parking ticket. Paul says that God has revealed the truth about himself, not just to us, but, but in us. There's something in our hearts that tells us that we're more than just accidental biology. There's some famous atheists like Albert Camus that have called this the absurdity of life, that it's like a big, almost like a joke that's being played on us by natural forces. He says, we just seek things from life that life can't provide. But other philosophers and thinkers like C.S. Lewis, I think had much more satisfying answers. Like Lewis said, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. That means there's such a thing as sex. Then he famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, well, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Anyway, there's a lot more to say on that one and all these other ones. And in fact, I probably, I probably leaned in too much on a, a couple of these, but they're all there in the book. And what I point out is that none of those are, are given as proofs for God. They're, they're really given as evidences of his existence. They're like divine fingerprints. Sure, a fingerprint can be forged. But you would need a compelling reason to believe it was forged before you wrote it off. If I come home tonight and there's a note from my wife inviting me to our favorite restaurant in her handwriting, you know, calls me by the little pet name she has for me. It is possible that somebody broke into my house, forged her handwriting and is, you know, waiting for me to, to, to kidnap me. That's possible. But there would have to be a compelling reason to believe that and not believe that it, it was what it, it looked like. That's what Paul says is like, the evidence is there. It takes a compelling reason to not want to believe the evidence. And that's where Paul is going to turn in his next question is like, well, what is it that makes people turn away from the evidence? If the evidence is there, why are there so many atheists and agnostics? Why are there so many different variations on, on what people believe about God? And that's where Paul turns next is he says, this is all an issue with the human heart. And if you're looking for answers, it's not just your head. You've got to consult. Um, the Bible gives the explanation for what's wrong with the human heart that affects what, what the mind sees. And that's the next question that Paul's going to get to, which we'll just say for a later podcast. It's obviously in the book, but Paul knows that first century men and 21st century people are both asking the question like, well, okay, if all this is so obvious, then, then why doesn't everybody agree on it? And, and Paul deals with that. We can hopefully get to it in the next, next Ask Me Anything. All right. Thank you so much, Pastor JD. Again, so helpful. These questions are just, you know, there's these basic questions that I think sometimes you, you hear them and you're like, well, I know the answer to that. But then how would you unpack that for somebody? How would you share that with someone that doesn't believe in God or that's new to their faith? And I think being able to do that is so important. So again, you can get this book, Essential Christianity, right now at thegoodbook.com. And next week, we're going to be back with the third question in this series, and it is, if God is real, why doesn't everybody believe in him? Really interesting question. 
Um, and if you liked this podcast or you generally like this podcast, go ahead and leave a review and a rating. That just helps other people find the podcast. The better rated and the more ratings we get, the more people get shared with. You know how it works, algorithms, all that kind of stuff. And so if you like the podcast, chances are other people are going to like it as well. So go ahead and leave a rating and a review, and we will see you next time on Ask Me Anything.